This is the current federal tax developments for the week of December the 13th, 2021. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. Ed Zollers, recording here this week in Phoenix, and we're going to talk about what's gone on in what's a relatively slow week for taxes, but there have been a few things happen. We'll talk about what wasn't a whole lot of movement, but at least some kind of, but not really promised dates for action for the Build Back Better Act program through the Senate. As of some dates that they are projected to have action by a kind of deadline uh, in order to keep the advanced child care payments flowing, as well as a promise that didn't end up quite being kept of getting our look at the Senate's version of the bill. So for all that's worth, we do have something. We'll talk about that. We're also going to talk about a case that involved kind of odd the way the case is structured, but technically it involves the special rules for community property for spouses that get divorced and those items that can be split apart, not split apart, you know, which can be reported on only the spouse who's deemed to have earned the income return, even though there's community interest in certain cases. We'll talk about that. I'm not sure the case really deals with that section, but it claims to. So we'll talk about that. It gives us a good reason to discuss the concept as well, as well as just some more general concepts in the area. The IRA gave us finally the formal guidance about how we're going to handle the fourth quarter employee retention credit for clients who began acting as if they were going to qualify for it based on a drop in revenue or being subjected to full or partial suspension of business in the fourth quarter, only to have with the House passage of the Infrastructure Investments and Jobs Act have that benefit pulled from them retroactively. So we'll talk about how we're going to go about paying back either the funds we got from filing our Form 7200 or how we're going to catch up the deposits. So we'll talk about that. IRS gave us formal guidance there, as well as the IRS was feeling generous. So they gave us a bit of guide for partnerships that are filing short-year returns this year who have international tax information that should be provided on a tax return for a year beginning in 2021. We'll talk about how to handle that when the due date for the return is coming up and we still don't have final versions of schedules K2 and K3. So we'll give you some information on working on that. With that, let's start talking about the Build Back Better Act and what's happened this week on that tax bill. Well, first, we should be aware that we, I think we told you in the past that Senator Schumer, the majority leader of the Senate, had said he planned to have votes by Christmas this week. We actually also got the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, who also came in and said that she expected to have a bill voted on and out by December, by the Christmas date. And at the same time, the IRS made it clear that a law would have to be enacted by December the 28th in order for the agency to be able to make a timely payment of what would be the first payment on next year's advanced child care, child credit, child tax credit. Remember, we just had the, la- the last one will be going out this week for 2021. The program ends at the end of 21 because the American Rescue Plan Act only covered 2021. Now looking at this and going forward into the future, 
uh, if they extend it, which is part of the Build Back Better Act, at least as drafted so far. The hitch is if they don't get that passed quickly, and of course we're already hearing comments that, well, maybe it'll be in early 2022 before they pass it, then the IRS is saying, well, look, if you don't get this done quickly enough, those checks are simply not going out on schedule in January or not going out in January at all. So you might want to consider the impact of this if you do decide to hold this and not pass it quickly. So we'll see. That does give a bit of a hard date, and Congress tends to like hard dates. I think we'll also see some stress here as Congress approaches the Christmas holidays because Congress does not like skipping their Christmas break, but they also don't like making decisions until the last second. So don't be surprised if we do see a scramble right around Christmas. And if December 28 seems somehow familiar from a year ago, well, it's one day later than when we got the bill last year formally enacted. So not terribly surprising that we might be facing again a tax bill that passes over the Christmas holidays that gets passed by Congress and then gets to the president after that date. And we're reacting to it just a few days to go in the tax year. That's a very realistic possibility at this point. Be aware of that. Finally, on Friday, Senator Wyden, the chair of the Senate Finance Committee, had said that he was hoping to have bill text out by the end of the day on the 10th. That didn't happen. I haven't seen that text as of yet. Uh, Hopefully it will come out shortly. And he did say that there would be some substantive changes in the Finance Committee's draft because this is putting out the entire bill. So it's not the Finance Committee doesn't handle all the bill items, but it does handle the tax and finance related things we're going to be primarily interested in from our perspective. And he was saying that he will have some substantive changes and also indicated that negotiations continue on the state and local tax question, which is one I'm sure some of you are very interested in. So we will you know, let you know if anything comes of that. But as of right now, we don't have the Senate's bill, so we don't know what's being proposed. And then we'll have to figure out what passes. And finally, if the House would accept what the Senate passes, if we have to go to conference, and if we go to conference, you know, are they going to be able to still get the votes in both chambers for any compromise conference bills? So stay tuned. It'll be a very interesting month. And yes, like normal, we are doing tax planning in December with no real idea what the tax law will be next year or even to a certain extent this year. And, you know, you do what you have to do. We try to figure this out. So anyway, it's interesting. It's not anything that unusual, I guess we could say, which is unfortunate. Uh, because we're getting way too used to these end-of-year or even on a couple of occasions after end-of-year tax bills that we are adjusting to every year. Let's go to our first development this this week. It is a case of Wheeler versus Commissioner. It's a tax court summary opinion that 2021-42 came out on December the 9th of this year. So recent, came out on Thursday. And what this, re- what this relates to is a case of a taxpayer who had gotten divorced. In fact, th- this couple filed for divorce in September. The divorce actually went final in December. So this is a rather quick process of getting the divorce done. I guess that's good news. Uh, however, 
you know, we have these issues here. Now, the taxpayers lived in Texas. For those who are not aware, Texas is a community property state, is one of nine community property states in the U.S. The other states will basically, starting from the Pacific Northwest, uh, include Washington, Idaho, California, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, Louisiana, and Wisconsin. Wisconsin is community property, mainly because back in the 60s, somebody thought that'd be a neat idea. Otherwise, most of the other community property states, except for Louisiana, all are old Spanish territories, and we use community property based on the law previously from Spain and or Mexico. Uh, Louisiana is based on the French version of community property. And, you know, Wisconsin kind of adopted the Mexican slash Spanish version of community property. So we have those states. In those states, generally, once you have a married couple, by default, anything that the couple earns during that time period, or in many cases, increases in value of things, etc., all become what's called community assets and part of the community income. Income is community, meaning owned half by each spouse, regardless of which spouse actually earned the income. And that complicates things when you have to file separate returns. It also complicates or simplifies, depends on how you want to look at it. Uh, Believe me, I've been in community property states for enough years that that to me it's like, yeah, everything divides half or it's good, let's keep going. If you're not with community property, it probably does complicate matters for you. Where it gets a little messier, though, is in the case of a divorce. And in the case of a divorce, we have a couple of things in play. First thing is, in a divorce, you have the issue that we have what's called the end of the marital community. And that is different in every state. In some states, the marital community ends when there is a divorce decree issued. Until that time, everything stays community income. In other states, the marital community ends when one spouse files for divorce so long as the action actually ends in divorce, which means you have this time period where community property doesn't apply. However, if the divorce action gets thrown out, which often happens, Uh, because failure to prosecute when people don't have legal counsel, that happens quite a bit, then suddenly the community property goes back in because we have to refile and everything starts back in community. Well, this wasn't a problem like that. This case is pretty straightforward. But the problem here is in the year the couple got divorced, so in December, early December of 2015, the divorce decree was finalized. And part of that decree said, that uh, the wife in this case would, you know, take whatever actions were necessary when presented with the forms uh, to basically remove her ownership interests and involvement with the company, with the S corporation in question here. Now, this was a little interesting because the husband and wife each had their own interests in this S corp. And that's why I call this interesting because we spend a lot of this case talking about special rules of Section 66. And Section 66C has special rules that allow you to ignore. told you about the state law rules there. But we can kind of ignore the state law community property rules and just like pretend this isn't a community property state for some items. But we have to meet specific requirements. And technically, in this case, the taxpayer was apparently trying to argue that under those rules, uh, she qualified to exclude the income. 
So it's kind of like an innocent spouse case, but not really. And there are a few other things. The other problem we'll have here is, as I said, the interesting thing is per the court, they each had an interest. It wasn't as if there was one block of stock and it was being divided 50-50. Rather, there were two interest levels. Now, it's possible that uh, the husband may have had his own block that was separate property, and then there may have been community property stock issued later. It's a little tough to figure out how these percentages arose. We aren't told. But, you know, it, it's kind of an interesting problem how the court gets at it. But let's discuss how it runs anyway in this case. Now, as I say, per the decree, the stock was transferred to her ex-spouse. However, in that final year, she was still a shareholder. Remember, she had her own shares of stock in the company. And so through December and until she executed transfers back over, she was still an S shareholder. As we know, under the standard rules for S corporations, if your interest is terminated during the year, you're still going to get a K-1. And that K-1 is going to allocate income to you either on a per share per day basis or if there's a cutoff accounting and everybody agrees, then we can allocate it based on, you know, close the books as of the last date of your ownership interest and then, you know, allocate to you based on that and then let the the continuing owners, in this case, be the one, the husband, apparently, will go ahead then and, you know, just report everything on their return. Now, in this case, she got a W-2 from this company and she reported that every year. So that had been reported on the joint return every year. And this year she got a W-2 from the company, but they also issued her a K-1. Now she claims she never got the K-1. And so she didn't report that on her return. Obviously the IRS cat that and said, wait a minute, what about this income? You owe us money. Uh, she filed a tax court petition. And then after the tax court petition was in play, she filed an innocent spouse form and claimed that she shouldn't have to pay tax on this money, so effectively conceding that, yeah, I guess I had stock, but, you know, I, I really, really wasn't uh, involved in this. You know, it's like I, I was there, so it's like I really wasn't involved in this, so maybe, you know, I shouldn't have to pay tax on this money. Now, this is an idea we hear a lot in, you know, whenever couples get divorced. I've had that sort of thing before. And it's worse in community property states because clients generally, you know, a lot of people in community property states don't really understand community property. And so, especially not the income taxation community property. And so they, they figure if they got divorced that they can prepare the return for the year with just their W-2, let's say, or do a married separate return with just their W-2 and not have to worry about that other stuff or we got in divorce. Well, you know, we're in divorce. My spouse got this brokerage account, even though we didn't close it off and decide that till December. That spouse, therefore, needs to report this because they got to keep the brokerage account and I got to keep this other account. So I report all of it. That's not really the way it works with community property, but this is the way that people want to do it. Now, in this case, though, she argued that, hey, I should get it. Now, her actual agreement said that you know, for the year of the divorce, each party shall file an individual return accordance with the IRC. This was in their divorce agreement. And they said, essentially, you know, that we'll indemnify for prior years or each responsible for those prior years. And 
They also has as part of the agreement that each party will cooperate with the other and provide any information requested to assist them in preparing their return for 2015. So that was part of her decree. Now, of course, she claims I shouldn't have to report this, uh, in essence. Now, the tax court said, well, let's take a look first. You were claiming you had this exemption under Section 66C, right? And 66C allows you to be relieved of liability if, from community income if you don't file a joint return. Well, she didn't. They weren't married at the end of the year, so obviously she didn't. Um, you know, you do not you did not know of or have no reason to know of the item of community income. You do not include such items as would be excluded under 879A of the code. We'll talk here in just a second what that is, right? And it would be, uh, you know, inequitable to include this item in your income. But 66E also provides that if you can't meet that test, those four requirements, if it is, though, inequitable, uh, you can still get an exclusion. Now, 879A, so this is under what's called, what the court refers to as traditional relief under 66C. So I have a client, they're in a community property state, they're either going to file a separate return or we're, like in this case, the year of divorce. So, you know, we want to, we're going to report using our income. Well, this now becomes a little interesting. Because 879 tells us which things, and by the way, generally 66C requires that you didn't live together at all during the last six months of the year or various other special requirements. But we'll, we'll skip that part of it. You know, you didn't live, live together during the year. We're going to just talk about the basic rule here. For 879, if you can't ignore community property laws, what can you split now? Well, generally, for earned income, you know, you'll... you'll tracks that to ever had the services. Well, an S-Corp K-1 flow-through amount of income is not considered, it's not earned income, right? We don't treat it as that, so that, that's not there. And then it says trade or business income and a partnership's distributive share of partnership income shall be treated as provided in section 1402A5, which again, looks at the client, you know, the, the person in question providing the services, right, or owning the interest. So it goes by your interest. Now, this is interesting because the court says that means that the amount allocated to her shares of stock has to be taxed on her return. And that's the only thing that they were trying to tax, which was on her K-1. And the court says, well, that's your income, right? So, you know, th this doesn't work because that you know, that says under 66C rules, that income goes to you, not to your ex-spouse, right? And then the third category says anything not covered by that generally has to follow community property rules that are governed by whatever the state in question says. So that'd be things like joint ownership of bank accounts, joint ownership of brokerage accounts and the income from that. All of that kind of follows uh, these things, right? as long as it's not separate property. And that's the other key issue in a community property state. If it's separate property, in most states, income from separate property is separate. Hey, okay, we get into that. Well, the court said the first problem was this is your income, right? So it's your income. And then secondly, the court said, 
we don't, you know, you should have known about this income, right? Because you'd been involved with the company, you knew the company existed, you'd been involved with it up until the divorce, right? You'd been gotten W-2s from it. It wasn't as if like you had no idea this thing existed. There had been K-1s on every return, the joint returns you'd filed previously. So it wasn't as if it was surprising such income existed. And the other catch that came up here, which is a little concerning, is that she hired a professional tax preparer to assist her with a return for 2015. And the court said, well, you know, you, you also knew about this preparer, right? Or I should say you also brought in a professional preparer. So even though you may not be tax sophisticated, you brought in you brought in somebody who is a tax professional. Presumably that person, right? That that solve that should solve the problem. And essentially the court is kind of saying, well, that person obviously knew you had a K1 last year. And so therefore, you know, we're going to assume that they were aware that it should show up this year, and that would have put you on warning to ask for it. And remember, you saw the right to ask for anything you needed information on from your ex-spouse. So, and you never tried that. You told us already that you didn't do that. So at the end of the day, we're saying, well, you should have known about it, right? Somebody should have followed up and asked questions. It's not enough to say, I just didn't get a K-1. You know, you had a responsibility to get this done correctly. You didn't. It's your income. And so the court said, we can't give you relief under the general rules. And then they turned around and said, and then they took a look at, well, well what about this kind of just generally equitable relief? And the court said for that, they did turn to the innocent spouse ruling from the IRS that is here. We talk about this in Revenue Procedure 2013-34. And there, the general rules are first to get the under the general test to see if you qualify. One of the key issues is that normally anything you're going to be relieved of responsibility for under equity cannot be your income. Well, as the court said, that starts with a problem initially because this income came off the shares of stock she owned and then at divorce got transferred back to her to her now former spouse or transferred to him, not necessarily back, but just to her former spouse as part of the agreement. And the court said, and so it's your income. There are limited circumstances where we might give you relief from your income under that ruling. But they said, you know, it, it's not, it was not attributable to her solely by community property law. That's number one, which is a way to get relief. You know, it, it's income that's only coming to you by community property law. You had no other interest in this thing. They said, no, you were a direct owner of the shares. So it was not community property law that was causing this. I, you know, the K-1 was in her name and she didn't, she didn't rebut the presumption that if a K-1's in your name, that the income is yours, right? She had to overcome that. She didn't. Uh, she claimed also that, well, but look, but estimated tax payments have been paid out of that corporation, and she didn't claim them. So, see, she didn't know what was happening there. She was unaware of it. They said, well, that, that, that doesn't really, to us, see to be enough, constitute either misappropriations of funds or any of those issues. It was just they paid it out of there. It applied to him. They said, we don't think he had demonstrated that was there. 
Uh, she filed her return. She didn't establish how any abuse by her ex-spouse somehow prevented her uh, from filing the proper return. And she didn't say that fraud was the reason for the erroneous return. So, as they say, no relief allowed. She had to pick that up. Now, this case, that comment about the tax term preparer is somewhat concerning, I think, for most of us in this business. Because what it suggests, and it's probably correct, but it is that generally, as a preparer, you have a preparer tax professional, you have a responsibility to obtain all necessary information, all information that you know reasonably you should have to prepare the client's return. So you ask questions, you do things. You know they're going through a divorce. So you should have asked for copies of the prior returns because that's going to be something I need to see, right? And those prior returns would have showed me there was an S-corporation here. I probably should have asked for divorce decree information because that'll have some tax orders in there and I need to watch that, see what's happening. You know, see if there's any rules about, you know, how do we file the returns? What's liability for prior years, etc.? Is there any special rules in there? And after doing that, your job is to advise. And as noted, you've also noted in the decree that she had a right to get tax information from her ex-spouse. So you should have told her that, well, there was a K-1 on here last year. You know, it appears to be part of the shares were in your name. Uh, that would suggest we should have a K-1 this year, and you should have followed up. Now, this gets back to, unfortunately, the standard problem we hit all the time. As I'd say, many times married couples, when they're divorcing, and this is the community property state version of it, other states you may have the same issue because they'll be jointly held property that they just want to ignore and allocate as if it can be allocated after the fact. Number one general rule of tax law is we follow state law ownership of income. And if you have an ownership of income, then maybe at the end of the divorce, it becomes part of a property settlement. So, you know, the fact that you hadn't taken the money out of the partnership uh, for your interest in it before the end of the year, but you transfer that then to your ex as part of your property settlement at the end, that doesn't make the income your ex's. That, that just basically was a property settlement transfer at the end. It doesn't change that. Well, kind of the same thing here. Now, the problem is we all know that clients, many cases, especially in a divorce, you know, they're, they're not necessarily in a divorce. They're not going to want to spend a lot of time normally interacting with their recently became or soon to become ex-spouse. Tends to be a bit of a tension in a divorce scenario. That's, that's normal. That's standard human reaction. Uh, even in good, even in nice divorces, there's still a tension and they tend to want to avoid interaction. They quite often, and I've had this asked to me many times during my career, and I practice all my career here in Arizona, community property state, you know, ask the question, well, can't I just file with, with my information? And the answer is generally no, right? Except in the very, very simplest cases, where you can get Section 66 to work for you, and they didn't live together at all during the year, and only income they got is W-2 income. It's the only income either one of them had. So there's no things that could be joint income that's not covered by this rule. 
so that we could just say, okay, take that W-2, you take this W-2, and we're fine. The answer is generally, no, you can't do it. Now, I know somebody's going to tell me, and people tell me this all the time, that, well, I've been in practice for 30 years, 40 years, whatever, and this has never been an issue. The IRS doesn't raise the issue. Well, first, obviously, we just have a case here that proves never is a bit overstating the case. This was a case where the issue got raised. You know, they had a report. Now, I will admit that if the K-1 had not been issued in her name, this thing probably wouldn't have come up. But once it came up, her defenses were zero, right? She had no way to defend against paying the tax on that income. Now, I realize she might not want to talk to her ex, but a tax professional is going to have to say, well, we need to do that. It's like part of the requirement because otherwise your client can become like Ms. Wheeler here and just get nailed for the tax on this. She needed to coordinate with, with her spouse. Uh, it was also found out for sure that her spouse had not reported the income on her K-1 on his return. Uh, not terribly surprising when that happens. And, you know, you need to be careful there. And the real problem here is for the preparer is you have just taken a position that has no support under the law. Now, you'll tell me it's a practical position. I get that comment all the time. No, uh, too often practical is a fill-in for obviously not legal, but I'll probably get away with it. And that's a dangerous position for a tax pro to be in. Because the problem is, yeah, those do get examined. We talk about cases like this, and cases like this don't exist unless the IRS actually got in and looked at something, which is what they did. So this is probably a cautionary tale. And if you don't normally work community property uh, situations, but you have a client in a community property state who is either going through a divorce or you are considering married filing separate returns, understand there are very special rules you need to deal with in that situation. And it's something that those of us community property states know right off, but it's something that's easy to get blindsided if you don't normally do community property returns and suddenly your client moves to Arizona, right? They're still doing the return. So, you know, they, they move from, let's say, Kentucky to Arizona. You're still doing their tax returns. And suddenly you don't realize, though, that on the federal side, uh, if you try to file married separate, it's not going to be at all like the return would have been back when they were in Kentucky. It's very, very, very different structure. Okay, let's go to the next thing that came up. This was notice 2021-65. Uh, this notice came up on December the 6th of this year. And what it really does is talks about the fourth quarter employee retention credit. Okay. As you may remember, the Infrastructure Investments and Jobs Act removed the quarter four employee retention credit for every employer except for recovery startup businesses. But the bill was signed into law on the 15th of November, so halfway through this quarter. Some businesses maybe knew they had a 20% reduction in quarter three. They had been told already that if you had a 20% reduction of revenue in quarter three, that would qualify you for quarter four. So they started reducing their payroll tax deposits 
or they started, and they even may have put in the 7200 and gotten checks back from the IRS. And the IRS was processing those checks because it was still the law. Yes, we knew from what the Senate had passed back in August that if the House passed this bill, which it almost certainly had to pass unchanged, uh, this would be ret- this would be now killed as of the end of September, so now retroactively. But nevertheless, people did it. Most of my clients did not. I don't have any clients client I know of who did this offset. They just were going to wait and see what the fourth quarter 941 showed. But some people got trapped. Now, this notice, again, reminds us of the standards. You got to be an employee. You got to be a recovery startup business to get in the fourth quarter. So that's normal in this notice. But then it talks about how to fix the problems if you've either been reducing your deposits or you went ahead and filed the Form 7200, which was asking for a check from the IRS because you would offset all of your payroll tax deposits that were due, and there was still some employee retention credit available. Well, if you did that with the 7200 and you got any money back from that, the IRS provides in this notice that you will have until the due date of the payroll tax reporting form that covers the fourth quarter. That'll normally be form 941 due on January 31st. You'll have until that due date to pay back the amounts, you know, the amounts you were paid as a refundable credit, as a, as the refund of it, the amount in excess of your withholdings. Now, if you were, the first thing you had to do though, before you could do that, was you had to offset your payroll tax deposits. So that means that more people, you know, in order to have the 7200, you pretty much have to have this reduction of deposit. And even more people will have just the reduction of deposit, never got to form 7200 because their employee retention credit was never greater than their payroll tax deposits do. If you did that, this one's going to be done a little differently. First thing is the IRS will not penalize you for reducing your deposits uh, for payrolls paid on or before September or December 20th, right? Think so we go. December 20th is our cutoff date. Probably want to stop it now anyway, but theoretically you could get all the way to the 20th uh, before you have a problem with reducing. Then you are to take your total reductions, the total amount of deposits you didn't make because you reduced your deposits based on your employee retention credit available which you're not going to get, you take all of that and treat that as a, basically as a liability from a payroll paid on December 31st. And what that means is whatever date that deposit would be due under your method, or if it's more than $100,000, you're going to be forced to the one-day deposit rule which in this case probably is going to be closer to four days because I recall we're going to get to January 4th before we get to the first day. You can actually make this deposit on the next business day, but the one-day rule would be triggered. So we're going to treat it that way. That does mean that we have two different payment dates here. So if any of your clients or your business got trapped doing this, you ended up making these reductions, these are the days you're going to have to be paying things back. So you need to start getting ready for that and being aware of these payments that will come up. Finally, the IRS was apparently in a mood to start giving uh, relief. So beyond that relief, and it's kind of relief because you never have to pay it back and didn't ask for it immediately. We also got some relief for a small subset of partnerships 
but it does allow us to remind you of something coming up for your partnerships. The IRS added a new Frequently Asked Questions page related to Schedules K-2 and K-3 for pass-through entity returns. Now, this is the IRS's website on December 7th. Now, this deals with short-year 2021 returns that have a year in before December 31st. As the IRS reminds us in the answers to this FAQ, generally, if I have a return year, a year beginning in 21, let's say that I have a final year for my S corporation and we close it down as of September 30. Because that is a year beginning in 21, it's a 2021 reporting year. However, the general rule is obviously 2021 tax forms are not going to be out by the initial due date of that return, which would be December 15th. So you're allowed to basically use 2020 forms to file that by crossing off dates and putting things in. The catch is the IRS this year is requiring businesses for tax years beginning on or after January 1st, 2021 to also file these more detailed reporting of international tax activities that schedule K2, K1, one of which goes with the tax return as a kind of an addition to schedule K, the overall reporting for the S corporation or partnership as a whole. And then the other one will go with each partners or shareholders K1 to give that particular party the knowledge of the things they need to know to complete this. Um, the question is going to be, though, how are we going to do that when these final forms aren't ready? Well, here's what the IRS has said. If the final version of K2 and K3 for 2021 is not released at least 30 days before the due date of your tax return for your partnership or S-Corp, then essentially you don't need to fill K2 and K3 in for this year. Rather, you can skip it. Okay, You don't need to worry about it. You can skip it. That's not going to be a problem, and you will not get penalized this year. They will waive the penalties. And remember, their theory is that if you're required to file this and you don't, generally the penalties you're looking at will be things like failure to file. You know, failure to file and failure to provide K-1s to either the IRS and the individual. So that's like three different penalties that run every month up to certain maximums. And that gets really expensive fast, especially if you have a lot of partners or a lot of shareholders. So be aware of that. So that's good news. But if those final forms are ready at least 30 days before the due date, then you have to file the K2, K3. Now, we talked earlier this year about potential relief in certain cases if you make a reasonable effort to comply but are unable to do so because you can't get information from your various equity holders. Uh, this year, they'll give you some relief on that. So you could still, in this case, qualify for that if you had the final forms come out within 30 days. Practical matter, this means if you are sitting on one of these short year returns, uh, I would probably say you take a look at the draft K2 and K3. You certainly get ready to have that information because... You know, it could come out on 30 days before your filing date. They could bring this out. So you need to be ready to do it on, you know, within 30 days that you can turn it out. But be aware of that and just kind of keep your eye on it. The big thing for more of us, though, is to remember that K2, K3 requirement is there this year. 
So if it's required, be sure that you pick that up and fill in that information. And hopefully you've taken a look at those forms. If you do have any partnerships that have to report any sort of foreign activity or that have, you know, foreign tax credits, there's all kinds of things that go on there. So be aware of that. This has been the current federal tax developments for this week, uh, the week of December 13th, 2021. As always, current federal tax developments brought to you by Capital Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I will be taking questions at edzollers at currentfulltaxdevelopments.com. If you want to check in there, see what's going on, you know, we can do that back and forth. I am going to be teaching this week, which is coming down to kind of like my final sessions uh, before we get to time to take the holiday break and then start picking up some things after the holidays. And there we probably do expect if we do get the Build Back Better Act, I'm definitely going to be working on doing some sessions for that. But this week, I'll be doing some sessions in Phoenix uh, on Arizona's new income tax, on Arizona's income tax update, which will include Arizona's brand new voluntary small business income tax. That is not anything to do with the SALT workaround that the other 19 other states have. I say that more for everybody on this broadcast. You just don't worry about Arizona stuff here. But I say that so that anybody from outside Arizona doesn't misinterpret what that thing is. Because most people believe with what's happening in all the other states that this is the salt cap workaround, like the Connecticut, you know, the Connecticut pass-through tax successors. Uh, no, Arizona adds that next year. This one is a wholly different beast. So I'll do that. I'll be giving a current federal tax developments update in Arizona this, this week. I'll be doing some kind of other things. I'm going to be working with that. I'll also be doing an update for Arizona uh, on the 20th. I'll be talking about the employee retention tax credit is the last session that I'm currently scheduled to actually talk about the full-blown ERTC in a four-hour session. So if you're still looking for guidance on that, Arizona's got an option to get in on that on the 20th of December. Uh, and then I'll be doing the, and I'll be doing as a full standalone Arizona's voluntary taxes, both the small business income tax and their pass-through tax that day. So that'll be there. Then I get to take time off, and uh, probably in the middle of all that, I'll get the brand-new tax law, and we'll be getting ready for brand-new tax law updates in January. So keep your eye on for that. But otherwise, take care, enjoy yourself, and we will hopefully see you back here next week for another week of current federal tax developments for the week before the holiday season gets going big. <laughs>